I'm Tim Smith, a professional support lawyer in the pensions team at Herbert Smith Freehills. Welcome to this latest pensions podcast. I'm joined today by Steve Webb, the former pensions minister and now director of policy at Royal London. Hello, Tim. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to be exploring a range of issues uh, around pensions policy, current developments, and also looking at the shape of things to come. Steve, one of the big areas that's being focused on at the moment is tougher regulation and talk of a tougher pensions regulator. How do you think the regulator's currently performing? I do think that the regulator is on a journey. Obviously, we have a new regulator only started a couple of months ago under intense scrutiny from people like Frank Field and the Select Committee, which tends to skew the agenda, to be honest, but um, clearly there are big issues about you know the, the headline cases, but also the bread and butter work of the regulator. And I think the desire to be more proactive has got to be a good thing, rather than a sort of three-yearly reactive cycle. To actually be in there, looking at the schemes that are of most concern, trying to prevent problems before they arise, seems to me to be the right balance. And, you know, examples like, I think it's the Sainsbury-Asda merger proposal, where immediately there was a focus what that would mean for the pensions. I believe the regulator got involved and a satisfactory solution was come up with. That kind of thing is far better than picking up the pieces after things go wrong. Yeah, and we've got a lot of the detail now around some of the new powers that the regulator um, is likely to, to, to receive. What do you make of those? Do you think they're going to make any difference? I think some of them are just gesture politics and not indeed the regulator's fault. I think the politicians, terrible people, uh, have a hand in this. So the, uh, the idea that anyone who apparently deliberately doesn't fund their pension scheme properly could in principle be jailed. Um, and you can see why that's a great headline and it's got the promised on the front of the Express a few times. But actually the bar for criminal prosecution is very high. Someone who is going to do that would cover their tracks pretty well. Years after the event, I think it would be very hard to prove. So that's a, a bit of a sort of salacious one, but I don't think it'll make much difference. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in things like the regulator's stance on dividends. And actually, I do think that's an area, there are no free lunches in this, but dividends does seem to be an area where you could squeeze a bit more money for the pension scheme, mm-hmm. where I think, for example, if executive remuneration depends on paying a big dividend, that gives an incentive to put less money in the pension scheme. Well, I don't think that's in the public interest. So looking at whether there is money to get recovery periods down, increased deficit recovery payments, that kind of thing, seems to me a, a good direction. And just more generally, the clearer, quicker, tougher mantra. It's a slogan at the moment, I suppose. But the key is to get it from the people at the top of the organisation to the front line. As a minister, people used to complain to me that it was fine what the bosses were saying, but if the person who walks through the door in your scheme doesn't live and breathe those same values, then it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and something that's kind of coming onto the regulator's radar is the whole subject of DB consolidation being looked at at the moment. Um, what, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think it's a good idea? In principle, I'm a great fan of DB consolidation. You know, we have, as you know, nearly 6,000 DB pension schemes in this country. We probably should have 50. You know, they just don't run at efficient scale. We know there is a terribly long tail of poor, poorly run, you know, trustees who don't meet this kind of stuff is incredible in this day and age that's even allowed. So I welcome people like David Fairs at the regulator talking about small schemes having to explain why they exist. Um, there has to be some teeth behind that. So I would welcome consolidation. Consolidation in, in uh, schemes that just stay where they are, as it were, but perhaps merge. I think the Clara model of a faster route to buyout feels like a more efficient one. Appreciate the super fund model is a bit more contentious, but provided that the, the right tests are in place for the, the people running it and for the, for the solvency levels, that seems to me a legitimate part of the landscape. So I would, I would welcome DB consolidation. Um, what would you say to those that kind of throw out the challenge that actually it's just regulatory arbitrage and taking advantage of that? 
Well, I'm certainly very struck by the, the PRA. Uh, their submission on this was, was eye-watering for a regulatory body. And clearly they're saying, hang on, the insurance companies that underpin this sort of thing have got to have very high solvency standards, the super fund less so. But that's true of the entire occupational pensions world. So if we, if we don't think there's enough security in occupational pensions in general, that's one thing. But to say the super fund somehow has to have a higher level than we accept for the other 5,000 odd schemes doesn't seem consistent to me. Yeah. One of the key legacies from your time in government was the introduction of automatic enrolment, um, which has been a great success. Clearly, we're kind of coming to the end of the beginning, really. Um, how do you think things should go on from here? How do they need to develop? There's a couple of things that EWP have already announced but not implemented. So that's enrolling people as soon as they start work, not waiting to age 22, and applying the mandatory 8% to the whole of earnings, not to a, a band of qualifying earnings. But it's a sign of how difficult this stuff is, that the Treasury is currently blocking both of those because of the tax relief costs. Mm. So the DWP did a big review, 2017, industry experts, everybody agreed it was sensible proposals, a press released it, and in the small print the press release said implement in the mid-2020s. And when the OBR went to the Treasury recently and said, oh, this is coming up, we ought to cost it, and the Treasury said, no, we haven't approved it yet. It's all about the tax relief costs. So that's one of the problems we've got. We need more money going into pensions. But the Treasury actually wants less money into pensions and more money into ISAs because they get the tax. And there's that tension within the Treasury. So um, we need those two changes implementing. And then we need to get beyond 8%. And, and I think there are two steps in that. One is 5% plus 3. 5 from the worker, 3 from the firm is too low. It's got to be 5 plus 5. I can't see it's sustainable to have the employers putting less in, so you could gradually step up to 5 plus 5, mm -hmm. and that may have an impact on wages. You know, mm -hmm. money's got to come from somewhere. But that would be a better start. So 10% of the whole of a wage would be a great start. And I think that'd be okay for 18-year-olds. And then when we get a pay rise, we need some sort of automatic nudge to just get people to make that 10 and a half, 11, etc. So I don't, I'm not one of these people who thinks it should just be 15, because we know at that sort of level we will get opt-outs. We've got away with it so far. So I think a credible 5 plus 5 on the whole of earnings and then some behavioural nudges to get us to realistic levels is the optimum solution. Mm. And I can see how that works for kind of 18-year-old who's joining today, but, but we've got this kind of generation in the middle who missed out on DB, missed out on the start of auto-enrolment, what, what would you do for them? It's very hard to come up with a policy that's kind of generation specific, that kind mm -hmm. of ignores the people at pension age and ignores the starters <laughs> and sort of, you know, yeah. policy for the 30 to 50s sort of thing. Um, but I think for that group, things like, the, albeit slowly, the pensions dashboard could be a good tool, because if we can nudge them whether it's midlife career reviews and financial MOTs and all that kind of stuff. But if we can nudge people to see what they've got, some simple modelling tools to see where they're heading, to make it the norm that you go and look at this stuff. And I've got one very specific idea, which is we've, we talk about the pension dashboard. Why would anybody in their right mind go there without a reason? And what I'd like to see is very early on in the dashboard, simply a list of all the pension schemes of which you are a member. Not a valuation, that's the difficult bit, that'll take years, but just a list. Even small, poorly run DB schemes and DC schemes ought to know who their members are more or less. If we got into the idea that you go to this place and you will find lost money, mm -hmm. and then the media story becomes Mrs. Jones found 30,000 quid she didn't know, and as more data gets loaded, we all go there. You know, If it becomes a destination website, effectively, we can then graft some tools on, make people aware of what they're heading for, get them to think about what they want and what the shortfall might be. Mm. Obviously, the other big thing uh, the coalition government was known for were pension freedoms. Um, we've now had a few years of seeing that begin to work out in practice. 
looking back now, is there anything you'd do differently? I, I guess the risk, I mean, despite the, you know, the Lamborghini jokes and all the rest of it, the risk actually was, was caution. And that's been borne out. In other words, we know that in general, people who have been prudent savers, made sacrifices, saved in a world where you didn't have to save, don't on the whole become mad spendthrifts at retirement. They aren't the ones who blow the lot on riotous living. They're the ones who eke out their money, probably spend too slowly, and they don't annuitize. So what's happened in reality is people who A, haven't taken advice, B, the guidance conversations happening too late after they've made their decisions, want the tax-free cash, everyone's focused on that, and then don't know what to do with the rest of it. So it either ends up in a default drawdown product with their own provider, so less shopping around than even with annuities, or ends up in a cash ISA. And although that's not great, we can fix that. Whereas in the past, if you ended up with a lousy annuity, you were stuck for life. At least if people have been a bit too cautious in the early years of pension freedoms, we can at least nudge them, have new defaults, etc. We can kind of undo some of that damage. Whereas a bad annuity outcome was, was you know, not just for Christmas, it was for life. Mm. And what steps do you, would you be taking now if you were in office uh, to address some of the kind of emerging problems? So things like DB to DC transfers or people investing in cash, those kind of issues that are coming out now. What steps would you, do you think ought to be being taken now to address those? I think it's fair to say that the volume of DB transfers wasn't expected. That's probably true. The mandatory advice framework is, is right, I think. 30,000 is probably too low a threshold, but the, the principle is right. I think that whole process wasn't well enough overseen. So obviously you had extreme examples like British Steel, where there was a sort of feeding frenzy went mm -hmm. on. But more generally, I think, for example, there are people who've transferred, and I, I'm a believer in the freedom to transfer. It's right for some people, not, not for most, but right for some. But much greater focus on what happens to the money afterwards. Because, you know, there are fairly straightforward things you can do with that pot of money. Invest in mainstream products at relatively modest cost, have the money invested for you. And instead, I think far too many people are in self-invested plans, trying to manage a third of a million quid. Well, I couldn't do that. Um, or their advisors sign them up to some uh, multiple tier of a charge here and a slice there and a product there and a platform fee. And, and, and before you know it, three, four percent's gone and add on inflation and you need five or six percent just to stand still. Well, that's not good. Mm -hmm. So I think much more focus. Yet, yes, we want the transfer advice to be right, but much more focus on where the money ends up, in my view. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Steve. Appreciate yeah. your thoughts.